uh, about five years ago, I taught through, started uh, with the book of Jonah, and then we uh, got through with that, went on to sort of that companion book of Jonah, which is Nahum. Uh, and then we did a survey of the book of Psalms. We just sort of took uh, what are the Psalms in general and the different types of Psalms, and then we just took a sampling of some different Psalms. I taught most of those, but I even had some other men in the church step in and, and teach on some of those uh, chapters. And then we followed that with a series on Philemon uh, in the New Testament, uh, which didn't take us a lot of time. It's a, it's a short, very short book, but it, some of the, thematically it was uh, very similar to what we covered in our series on conflict resolution. We talked about offenses and forgiveness and those types of things. Uh, and from there, we, we covered, uh, took a long time to go through Ecclesiastes. Uh, it was about a year and a half, I think, that we uh, spent on that book. And then most recently, uh, before I sort of moved across the hall, uh, we had finished up a series on Song of Solomon. I think it was back at the end of, of this past year. So it was just a natural thing for, I guess, for us to, having spent a lot of time at Ecclesiastes, uh, penned by King Solomon to then go to the Song of, Song of Solomon. Uh, so we're about to dive into Hosea, which raises uh, a couple of questions. Uh, the first one's up here for us. Why, why study the Old Testament, or why, why do New Testament Christians need to study the Old Testament Scriptures? And then along with that, uh, and we'll, we'll give some answers to that, but uh, how then do we do that? How do... New Testament believers, New Covenant believers need to study the Old Testament scriptures. So these are a couple of things I want to I answer this morning. Uh, we won't really get to the text of Hosea today, but we'll jump in uh, next week. My, my goal is to finish up probably by the end of January um, and then uh, see where we go from there. We'll be going to a New Testament book from, for sure. Uh, we may actually go to the book of Revelation. Um, so I'm just trying to, 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 to decide what, what to do there. But for the next few months, we'll be looking at uh, Hosea. So maybe before we even do that, you know, I, I think it's be good to consider these, these questions. Why do that? <laughs> Why study a book like Hosea? And if, if we're going to do that, then uh, how, how do we do it? How do we faithfully do that? Uh, so let's begin with the why. Why is it important? Why is it, why is it absolutely essential for us to read, to study, and to know uh, the Old Testament? Any ideas? You got any thoughts on that? Yes, sir. Okay, all Scripture is God breathed. Okay, breathed. Any? What else? Anything else come to mind? Okay, all right, so it sort of lays this foundation um, for us, we, you know, about Christ, Christ's coming. Well, you had a comment, Philip? It's the scripture that Christ and the apostles had to even, like, lay the foundation of what is in the New Testament. Okay, all right, very good. We'll talk about that as well. Yes, sir? Well, didn't Paul say that, I think it was Paul that said, these things were That's right. That's right. Okay, so, so you think about, if I, if I were to say, go to, just an example of that, if I were to say, uh, the, Lord, the Lord, we know the Lord calls us to love one another. Okay, so, uh, and we know the Lord loves us. So what, 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 what passage comes to your mind when we talk, think about the love of God? Most people would say, I would, what, what, okay, you go to John 3.16, or maybe 1 John 4, or... What's that? Yeah, First John four. You got First Corinthians thirteen, right? But nobody said Hosea, right? Like the love of. I mean, that that's what Hosea is about the the unfailing love of God. So you know, we just and again, those are all good answers, right? But I'm just saying what's what we find in the Old Testament. Again, you said examples, but also that it's 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 illustrative. It it illustrates. There are some fantastic examples or illustrations of these New Testament truths in those Old Testament narratives. And so we're going we're gonna to look at, the, at some of that, the benefits of that. Um, and yet, again, we have to be careful when we go back to the Old Testament that we don't just sort of, mind, sort of in a mindless way just take all that stuff we know about the New Testament and just sort of import it back into the Old Testament. 
Um, so we'll talk about how to sort some of that, uh, that out as we go. So let me, let me just, I'm going to take some of the things you've said, maybe add a couple more to that, but let's just go through a list of reasons here why I think it's important for us to do this. First, and this was mentioned because the Old Testament is just as inspired as the New Testament. Okay, somebody brought up 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So we have this phrase, this term, all Scripture, uh, scriptura, right, in the Latin. Graphe is the the word for, uh, is, is the term in Greek. So it's referring to... Paul's referring to the writings that Timothy had at his disposal at that time, right? Um, some of which would have been, I think, New Testament, New Testament material, because at this point, you can go over to first at 2 Peter chapter 3, which identifies New Testament writings as Scripture. So this written to Timothy would have been written at a time when there was there was, there was a recognition of those, some of those New Testament writings as being inspired, but for the most part would have been Old Testament uh, material that, that Paul would have been referring to. So Paul says, you'll notice that every scripture, every individual portion, because it's, in it's in the singular, so it's, it's, it's each, each one, each one of those scriptures is to things he says first it's inspired by god and it's profitable or I think the ESV says useful so every word of the new testament was breathed out by god and every word of the old testament was breathed out by god uh, and you'll notice what's inspired is it's not the writers of scripture it's the writings right so this the, the writings are inspired in other places, Scripture is called, for instance, over in Romans 3, uh, verse 2, the oracles of God or the sayings of God, or, or the, uh, I think in First uh, Peter 4, it's the, uh, the utterances of God. That is to say that God is so identified with His written Word that when Scripture speaks, He speaks. So there's places like Galatians 3 and Romans 9, 17, where it's saying the Scripture is saying, but if you go to what the, the passage is talking about, it wasn't Scripture saying it, it was God Himself saying it. And yet the writers seem to not make any... It's like they, they use these things interchangeably. That the Scripture says this, or the Spirit is saying this, or God Himself is saying this. They, they use those terms, sort of just uh, swap them uh, out, out at times. So every Scripture, all Scripture is inspired in profitable and in what ways he says it basically in these ways that it that it tells us what to believe and how to behave uh, or it gives us this sound doctrine it describes who God is it describes and defines what righteousness is then it rebukes rebukes us for wrong belief and wrong behavior so it tells us basically what is right and then it exposes what is wrong so it tells us who God is and what he expects but then when we read and are confronted with Scripture, then we realize that we fall short, right? So it exposes our sin, and then it does more than just that. It actually corrects it, right? So that's the, the Word of God is, is, is the instrument that, that God uses to, to correct wrong belief and behavior and turn us back to the Lord, and, and it's the thing that restores us when we stumble, and then it trains us so that we stay on course and persevere and mature, so it does all those things. <laughs> so it tells you what's right. It tells you when you're wrong. It corrects you. It restores you. And then it keeps you on a path so that you don't keep repeating these things with no progress. Right? It moves you along in your Christian faith. That's what the Word of God does. And because both the Old and New Testaments are inspired and because they are both profitable, we should treat both of them with equal respect. Right? We, we need the Old Testament. As you said, it, sa- it sets this foundation, it sets this framework for our understanding of redemptive history, uh, and it illuminates our understanding of the New Testament. In other words, there's passages and concepts in the New Testament that would be obscure without the Old Testament. 
For instance, John the Baptist declaring Jesus to be the Lamb of God. Right? I mean, if we, if we had no Old Testament, that wouldn't mean very much, right? We would it'd be obscure. We wouldn't, what, what does John the Baptist mean? But we know what John the Baptist means because we have that Old Testament framework, right? Uh, or, the, or Jesus mentioned the sign of Jonah, right? Or even the concept of the day of the Lord, a certificate of divorce, a sympathetic high priest, a crowd of witnesses in Hebrews, the kingdom of God. What does it mean when Paul says that, 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 that you're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers? Well, we go back to the Old Testament, right? I mean, that, that, the Old Testament informs our understanding of those things. Muzzling the ox in 1 Timothy 5.18. The problem of Samaritans in Jewish society, right? We go back, go back look at Ezra, look at Nehemiah. The expectation of the Jews that Jesus would bring political liberation. I mean, all these things make sense when we read our New Testament when, we've, when we have a grasp and understanding of, of the Old Testament. So the Spirit wrote both. We need both. Some Christians will say, well, we're not under the law, right? This is their sort of catch-all, you know, like uh, excuse for not being familiar with the Old Testament. We're not under the law. And what, uh, what they imply is that we're not responsible for knowing and applying the Old Testament to our lives as New Testament Christians. Um, one thing that's, I guess, faulty about that is not everything in the Old Testament is law. <laughs> so um, they, they sort of, I, I guess, just use that as in, in that, that particular statement. They're just sort of using that term law to encompass everything in the Old Testament. Uh, but again... Uh, either the Old Testament, as Paul says, is profitable uh, or it's not. So, uh, you know, you have to wrestle with Paul over that. It is profitable, and then we'll, we'll talk more about how, how it is profitable for us. So that's one reason. It's inspired. Another reason is because our Lord esteemed the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, Jesus frequently appealed to the Old Testament when refuting the false doctrines of the Pharisees with this line, Have you not read... Have you not read? For instance, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 1 says, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. But he said to them, verse 3, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. Verse 5, Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, so he's, 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 he's pointing out he's sort of this, have you not read this? Although his assumption is they have, okay, that they have, they are familiar with these things, but then what he what he drives at in verse seven is more of the, well, if you read this, certainly you understood it. Like he, there's an expectation that they would understand, not just read or be familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, but that they would have understood the implications of those things. I mean, what is God actually asking us to do with those things? So he says, but if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So interestingly, in that one passage in Matthew, he is, Jesus pulls from both Leviticus, or, 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 um, Leviticus, Exodus, and 1 Samuel in that argument. Okay, so he's, so he's pulling, from, pulling from the Pentateuch, he's, he's pulling from uh, the prophets, um, in First Samuel, and again, some of these men you have to realize would have they would have memorized uh, massive portions of the Old Testament. So they they had read about David. They had they they understood what the showbread was and all this related to to the uh, the priests and the and the um, uh, to the ta- the tabernacle and those sorts of things. Uh, but his question is, did you not understand what was there? You're you're not you're not. You're not paying attention. He goes on Matthew 19. So he does this throughout really the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 19, verse 3, Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him, asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read 
that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Where's that, where's that, that from? Genesis chapter 2, right? So he goes all the way back to Genesis. He does it again. The Sadducees become asking Jesus about marriage in heaven. Matthew 22, verse 30. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. <laughs> so it just gives you this impression that um, whatever the Pharisees and the Sadducees were doing wasn't very powerful, right? It wasn't really getting at issues of the heart and leading to life transformation. Uh, but when Jesus simply pointed back to Scripture in the Old Testament and explained it, it just pointed to the clear meaning. It, it, haven't you read this? And don't you know this is what it means? That the people were like, whoa. That guy's got some authority, right? I mean, that's some powerful stuff. I mean, again, that just, it not only, it, to me, that not only, not only indicates the power of, of Scripture um, and the transforming effect it does have on us, but it also indicates how weak, right, the teaching and the, actually was, right, at that time because of the neglect of the Scriptures. Um, Mark chapter 12, verse 10, speaking to the chief priests, scribes, and elders, verse, verse 10, have you not even read this scripture, the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Again, that's from the Psalms. Um, and then remember when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. How, how did he defeat Satan? With what? With scripture, right? And do you know, know the book that he went to? Deuteronomy, he went there in three different places, Deuteronomy 6, 8, and 10. So I'm just saying, our Lord esteemed it, right? I mean, he was familiar with it, he understood it, he, he, he used it, um, he followed it. And so we need to have, I think, that same, same esteem and that same um, reverence for it. So that's just one other example, uh, because our Lord esteemed the Old Testament. A third uh, reason why we study and apply the Old Testament as New Covenant believers is because the Old Testament has been given, again, one of you mentioned this, as an example for us. The Scripture, is a, I think uh, Matt brought this up, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1, uh, Paul writes this, he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us. So it's very explicit there. So that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the, try the Lord or test the Lord as some of them did and, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, so this is sort of that, you know, he starts out saying, I don't want you to be unaware. <laughs> so he says, you need, you need to go back and be aware of these things. So I don't want you to be unaware of what, of what happened. So I want you to, to know those things and to know that those things happen as an example. And they were written for our instruction. Verse 12, therefore... Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. So he's just saying, you look back at those examples. Now, of course, not all the examples in the Old Testament are examples of failure, right, and sin. Uh, we have examples of faithfulness and obedience. But he's pointing out this particular history uh, of Israel, these specific events, and just saying those things were for, are examples for us so that we don't think that we're beyond that as New Testament Christians. I mean, the, it, the, if you, in other words, if you could peel back the, the, 
the, the outward stuff, the fruit, and get down to the root issues of the heart in the life of, of, of any person in the Old Testament or any group of people in the Old Testament, you would find out that these things are common to man, right? I mean, those struggles that David went through and, and Joseph went through uh, and Cain went through, I mean, those are, those are things that we struggle with, right? Those are the same battles that we deal with every week. And so when, as we look at those examples, what, what that ought to produce in us is a, a humility, right? That we would say, Lord, I don't, want to, I don't want to repeat that. I don't, I don't want to do that. But oftentimes it leads to pride. And so then he says, verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you but such as common to man. So there he just says, it's, these are all at a heart level. These are common things. <clears throat> Depression, sinful anger, unforgiveness, um, pride, selfish ambition, immorality. I mean, again, these are all, these are all common things. And he says, and God is faithful, which is also consistent, right? <laughs> so the heart of man has been relatively consistent <laughs> going all the way back to Genesis 3. But what has also been very consistent all the way back to Genesis 1.1 is God's faithfulness, right? So God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation provide the way of escape also so that you'll be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from immorality. Flee from it. Run from it. So Paul says, learn from those who have gone before you and avoid their mistakes. Sinful cravings, idolatry, immorality, and yes, ingratitude. Right? Ingratitude's a big one. Okay? Um, it's one of the common sins among humanity of, of just unbelievers. Right? Romans 1. Right? They, they do not give thanks to God. And, and God's people sometimes don't do that appropriately and, and consistently. And you can go back to the Old Testament. You can see that. Oftentimes, God's people were grumbling and complaining against God. So the Old Testament is not something to ignore, and it would be detrimental to your spiritual health to overlook it and ignore it. Paul is telling the Corinthians, don't think these things wouldn't happen to you. In fact... The Bible's records of the sins of Israel and the discipline of God that came as a consequence, the, the last thing that that should generate in our lives is pride. <laughs> the last thing it should produce is pride. So as we read and we study Hosea, so as we get into that here in the coming weeks, we ought to be saying to ourselves, let him who thinks that he is not like Gomer or Israel or Judah take heed that he does not fall. Right, Because we're going to go through that book, and you're going to read some things that these people were doing, and you're going to go, that's crazy. I mean, what a bunch of idiots, right? I mean, I mean, no shame, right? Look at what they're... And I'm saying, be careful, right? Scripture was not given so that you could separate yourself from those things and think, oh, that's not me, Right? Scripture was given so that we would learn from those examples of failure and go, man, that could be me, right? And Scripture gives us those examples of success and obedience, not so that we separate from that and say, well, those are superheroes. You know, I mean, Joseph, I mean, think about what he went, I mean, I couldn't do that. I mean, read Hebrews 11. I mean, look at all those faithful believers and saints. I mean, they must have had something, (laughs) you know, I mean, five-hour energy, they had something that they did every day that just allowed them to just be propelled into this victorious Christian life. No, you have more resources, right? You have, you have more at your disposal in the Christian life to overcome sin and to be faithful to God. And so don't look at their success and their obedience and faithfulness and say, I couldn't do that. Yes, you can, you can do that. In fact, you're expected to. You're expected to be faithful, so we don't need to do that. We need to be careful, careful even in a book like Hosea that we don't, again, just go, oh, Israel, oh, Judah, oh, poor Gomer. No, we, these are, that, that prophecy, we, we need to be walking away every week during this study, woe is me, woe is me, being convicted about the sin in our lives and also, but behind sort of, we've got to deal with the sin, right? We've got to face that. We need to be challenged in our hearts by those things. We need to repent of those things, but not just that, right? We don't stop there. We turn to, to Christ, right? We place faith in the Lord and His promises. That's what we need to be doing as we go through this. 
So as we read and we study Hosea, we, we, ought, we ought to be careful that we don't have an attitude uh, of pride, but that it drives us to humility because we can so identify with those examples of failure and unbelief. So these are examples to us, Paul says. Sometimes examples are good, sometimes they're bad, sometimes they're examples of things we should emulate, at other times they're examples of the things that we should avoid, right? <clears throat> so as you think about an example in the Old Testament of the Lord's discipline of sin in the life of a, of a believer, what, what comes to mind? An example of someone who was a follower of God but, was, but sinned and was disciplined. David, okay. What, what about an example of... of um, of the danger of fearing man. Who, who said Saul? Right there. Okay, so Saul. Did you read my notes this morning? No, okay. Saul, anybody else have another example of that, though, in the Old Testament? Abraham, okay. Um, so again, Saul, and in First Samuel 15, there, Saul's disobedience as a result of fearing the people. And you see that over and over again, right? It's just in that particular. You see that truth. Over and over again in the Old Testament, the unique thing about this, the, that particular passage is it actually tells you explicitly why he did it. He did fear the people, right? But then you can see other times where people made foolish decisions in the Old Testament. It's not explicit in the text, but it's, it is pretty obvious that's what they did. What about an example of trusting God, right? A, a, a trusting God in the midst of difficult circumstances. Okay, Job, Esther... What's it? Oh, yeah, there you go. Now you're, you're digging deep now, right? And then some of these things, folks, I'm telling you, you read them, they're just a paragraph. I mean, we have these extended narratives like Joseph, right? Those are usually the ones that come to mind, but I'm telling you, there are nuggets everywhere in the Old Testament. Again, illustrating these things for us. It's interesting. Paul writes to the believers in Rome concerning the purpose of the Old Testament scriptures in Romans 15.4 says, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So Paul's saying this is, what, this is what the teaching of the Old Testament does. It develops spiritual endurance in our lives even under long-term challenging circumstances. Furthermore, he says, such instruction provides us with consolation and comfort while we are bearing up under those trials in our lives. So the end result is that, that Scripture fills our hearts with hope. Right? So Paul's just saying, and again, the Old Testament clearly is wrapped into this statement that Paul makes in Romans 15. He's just saying those things lead to perseverance in our lives. Right? I mean, when you, when you see those examples and you see those illustrations, it, 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 it bolsters your faith it gives you the fuel to go through those trials, to bear up under those difficult things. And in the process, God not only, not only again moves you along in that path, but he also brings comfort, right? Because you don't, only, you don't just see, there is something about just seeing those Old Testament saints just sort of determine, right? Like Daniel, like, he just determined in his heart. He just set his heart and his mind in a certain direction because he was not going to be defiled, right? And, and that, when you read that, you're like, okay, I'm going to do this, right? I mean, and you're encouraged by that. He did that. I am going to do this. There's nothing wrong with that, okay? I am, I, I am going to determine today to be faithful to the Lord. I'm going to determine today to please the Lord. I mean, that, there's nothing wrong with that, but that's not all that you get from that because what you also see is the comfort of God, and the presence of God, right? Because in the story of Joseph, you have Joseph making the right decisions, right? Submitting his will to the truth, but at the same time, you have these reminders of, and God is with him, and God is with him. So you're comforted by those examples as well. And ultimately, Paul says it fills your heart with hope, right? <laughs> in, in my translation, you don't quit. You keep moving on. You keep, because there's, it's always out there, right? There, this, there's this, this promise, God is with you now, but God has these things for you in the future. There is an inheritance laid up for you, all those things, and that keeps you going in the Christian life. So that's the end result. It's a heart, heart filled with hope, a confidence, uh, an eager expectation in God's promises and provisions for our lives both now and in the future. 
So why, why study the Old Testament? Because the Holy Spirit wrote it, because our Savior esteemed it, because it provides examples that can help us as Christians. Fourthly, because the Old Testament elaborates on ethics omitted in the New Testament. So that, what I mean by that is that the New Testament doesn't have much to say about some ethical issues such as necromancy or euthanasia, polygamy, just war, slavery, abortion, bestiality. I mean, there, there's a lot of things back there in the Old Testament that when you get to the New Testament, you don't have ex- explicit uh, data and information, explanation about those things, but you certainly can learn a lot about those t- subjects, uh, some of those ethical issues, uh, just by going back and, and familiarizing yourself with the Old Testament. So we might say this, the Old Testament provides air support for those issues, right? So you, it's not like those aren't issues anymore, right? I mean, these things are still around, but the New Testament doesn't oftentimes just mention them in lists, or like I said, even if they're mentioned in a list, you don't, it doesn't necessarily unpack those things. But the assumption is that you have the Old Testament framework. The assumption is that you have, you've done some study there and you've, you've uh, learned some things from that. Uh, another thing is that we study the Old Testament because many of the policies, we might say, it might be a I don't know if that's the right word. Many of the policies of the New Testament church originate in the Old Testament. Uh, Requirements for leadership in the church echo that of the priests. Uh, Proper support for ministers. The pursuit of holiness for the church. The very idea that the church should be pursuing purity and holiness, right? Uh, Corporately. I mean, certainly as individuals, we do that. But there's this, right? You get to the Matthew 18 passages and others where there's this, the, the church it ought to be about pursuing faithfulness and holiness and realizing that they've been called out for the Lord. They've been sanctified. and they've been, they've been called out of the world. They've been set apart for God. That is not just a New Testament concept, right? I mean, you could go back to the Old Testament and see that again in individuals and, in, and even with the nation of Israel or even particular families, right? So you can see those things. Service to widows, right? That's a new, it's in the New Testament, I mean, the church in the New Testament has a responsibility to take care of, of, of widows, but that's just not in a vacuum, right? I and mean, we have a ton of material in the Old Testament uh, regarding that same, same concern. Church discipline. Well, that's what I'm saying, the church discipline idea. Uh, it's interesting because we even touched on this in the conflict resolution. We went to Hebrews chapter 12 where it's talking about that that, that mutual oversight that we have in, in the church of one another, making sure that there is no root of bitterness that springs up, right? So our, our, one of our responsibilities in the New Testament church is that we are to be looking out for one another so that no one apostatizes, right? So we're encouraging one another, we're dealing with sin, we're exhorting one another, we're stimulating one another to good deeds. Why? Because we don't want anybody to walk away. We don't want anyone that's professing faith in Christ today to turn and go back. And so God uses that interaction and he uses in his providence that oversight in one another's lives to prevent that apostasy. But when the writer of Hebrews mentions that in Hebrews 12, he's pulling that from Deuteronomy, the concept. The, The concept was there among the nation of Israel, that when they went into the land and possessed the land, they had this same responsibility within the nation to provide oversight in one another's lives so that no one would turn away from the true God and go serve idols. So the writer of Hebrews, again, it's it's this issue of church discipline and accountability and all those things. They're not just New Testament ideas and concepts. We, we, We have a lot to gain by seeing things in the Old Testament that and, and tying some of those uh, concepts together. Uh, and then I would add, maybe this is a final one. We studied the Old Testament because history did not begin with God's Son coming into the world um, as the God-man. Uh, history, including redemptive history, began with God in Genesis 1. Now, certainly the early, early church in Acts understood that what they were experiencing was connected in many ways back to the people and the promises and the events of Israel from centuries past. You see this in Acts chapter 7 
where you have uh, Stephen uh, before the Sanhedrin, where Stephen sort of strings together some of the highlights of redemptive history by mentioning Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, and Solomon. Uh, he then actually con- he concludes this uh, in Acts 7 and verse 51. He says, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become, and uh, you who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. So again, in his, in his sermon, he's, he's, he's reaching back, giving them this, uh, this uh, timeline sort of of redemptive history and, and, and bringing it to bear on them and, and again bringing conviction and pointing out the fact that they had these things and yet they did not observe these things. Paul also followed this pattern in Acts chapter 13, referring back to the exodus and the wilderness wanderings and the conquest and judges and Samuel and Saul and David all the way up, and he works his way up to the coming of Christ. So in both of these examples, the audience was mainly Jewish, but even when Paul preached in Athens to a Greek audience that had very little understanding of Jewish history and theology, he referred back to the God who made the world and all things in it. So even when he was addressing an audience that didn't have, they wouldn't have necessarily known all those places and events and all of those people, Paul still just unashamedly went back and just said, well, this is where it all began. In fact, you'll notice at the end of Acts, Paul's under house arrest in Rome, Acts 28, says that when they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. All right, so we have Paul, we have the New Testament church, right? And, and Paul is, again, he's, he's making reference back to these things. He's going back to the law, he's going back to the prophets, He's, he's connecting. He's connecting a lot of these dots uh, for those that were that were coming to him. Now, what about the question of how? Right? How should New Covenant believers approach and study the Old Testament? Well, yeah, you have a comment. That's that very in Acts twenty-eight, verse twenty-three. Uh, the question is how? How do we do this? How should New Covenant believers approach and study the Old Testament? So. Or you might ask this question, what are, we, what are we looking for when we study the Old Testament? So uh, I would say the first thing we're looking for is authorial intent. Authorial intent. We're attempting to answer with as much objectivity as possible the question, what did the author intend to communicate to his original hearers or the original audience? So how do we do that? Well, we don't want to get into a big discussion on... Bible interpretation and hermeneutics and all that. But essentially what we're doing is we're examining the historical occasion of the text. So what was going on? Again, th- these things aren't just sort of floating out there. I mean, there's, there are things happening. <laughs> things are happening and unfolding, and there are certain situations that precipitate um, these these uh, God speaking certain things or teaching certain things or announcing certain things. So just like when you get to the book of 1 Corinthians, you know, or Shane's going to start in the Thessalonians this morning. I think he's going to begin a series in 1 Thessalonians and saying, where is Thessalonica? <laughs> you know, it's like, and what was going on? You can learn a lot about this city and about this church and what some of the issues were that were going on, and it's the issues going on and the historical occasion that is what motivates Paul to write to them. So if you're going to understand what Paul is writing, you've got to kind of know for what purpose. Like, why was Paul even writing? So we call that the historical occasion. You've got to examine what that is. And so as we look at the book of Hosea, 
there is a historical occasion, right? We're going to look at this next week, but just some of the things that are going on in Israel, uh, which requires you to dig into history, right? It's hard to know the historical occasion if you're not willing to spend some time looking at the history. So we'll have to take a look at that. Also, you have to examine the grammar of the text. So this is just words and syntax. It's the, it's the arrangement of words, uh, the relationship between words and phrases. You know, we don't always pull out all of that when we're going through a Bible study or in a sermon, but there are certain things we do. So sometimes it's just helpful to say, you see that word right there, right? So that means, so when you, we, we, we looked at the Second Timothy passage earlier and said that all Scripture is inspired. That word inspired, that's one of those words, right? You, you, you want to make sure you understand what that word is, right? It's God-breathed, okay? So sometimes when we're teaching, we, we do highlight those things because they're, they're very significant. So there'll be those times, even in, the, uh, even in the study of Hosea, when we'll have to point those things out. So the, the historical context of the human author through whom God spoke, the words themselves, and the flow of thought. And then we do that in light of what we call progressive revelation, uh, which is what God has already revealed up to that point in history. So we strive to draw out the author's meaning with the force that, that he intended it, but we, we do that in, in, in light of the fact that God had only revealed certain things up to a certain point. And so we just have to be careful, again, that we don't jump to the New Testament or even to Old Testament scriptures that came later and to then import that back into what Hosea said, right? Because Hosea, the the original audience didn't have that. So that's what we mean by authorial intent is that you have to think about the original author, the original audience, the historical uh, context and the historical occasion, and then you have to say, what would the audience that Hosea was writing to, how would they have understood that? You have, you have to stay there. You cannot, you cannot, you know, and this is what you hear today, a lot of, well, that scripture means to me, right? Well, that's what the scripture means to me. Well, it doesn't matter what that scripture is, is to you. That's, that's, that's not, we don't, that's, that's not the first thing, right? And a lot of times people, when they say that, they're just talking about the application. That's just their way of saying, that this is the way I apply that to my life. But we have to be careful that we don't get the cart before the horse. Okay, We've got to start with the historical context. Again, usually people's biggest problem in Bible interpretation is that they read the Bible abnormally. Right? They don't, they don't just inter- interpret the Scriptures normally. It's as if that when they open their Bibles, they forget everything that they've ever learned about reading. So they, they, they ignore the context. They look for secret personal meanings. But when we, when we say normal interpretation, what we're saying is that when you read the Bible, that you're just following the reading practices that you would consider sensible for reading any other important document, even though it's not just any other important document. But you still read it that way, right? So just to give you an example, if the principal of this school were to write a note to the school's maintenance person telling them to replace a faulty fluorescent light in classroom 12, that is an important document to the maintenance man, right? Because he's hearing from his supervisor and his supervisor is telling him something to do. And so to him, that is, it may not be important to you, but it, but it should be important to him, right? Because it's his job to fix those kind of problems. So the question is, what does the maintenance man do? Well, he doesn't read a mystical secret meaning about spiritual light into the principal's note, Right? He reads it carefully, right? He reads it normally in order to determine which light is burnt out. And then he goes and he gets a fresh bulb and a stepladder. And he replaces the bulb, right? That's what he does. That's normal interpretation. And, and, I, would, and I would contend that's the way we read our Bibles. Now, it's not to say the Bible, the Bible doesn't, there's not figures, figurative language and symbols and those things in the Bible. I'm just saying you, you start... If you think about normal interpretation, you you interpret things that way, and then when that doesn't make sense, right? So when Jesus says, I'm the door, okay, when something like, it doesn't make sense to just, at that face value, so is Jesus a literal door? 
then you think about figurative language. But what we do sometimes is we go into Old Testament scriptures assuming it's all figurative, assuming it's all symbolic. So I'm saying you have to, you have to discern those things uh, as you go, and you just always remember God did not give us his word to confuse us or to hide the truth, right? He gave us his word that he would reveal himself and his will. So that, that, is, that is biblical interpretation, I would say, in, in a nutshell. Again, we could spend more, more time on that. Then there's this second major component that we have to give attention to. And not only are we attempting to discover authorial intent, that, that is primary, but we also have to look for the implications of the truth for the original audience. Okay, so what do we mean by implications? Well, that just means that we're looking for every way in which the Scripture exposes wrong thinking and, and, and errant convictions or unholy uh, desires or motivations or idolatrous affections and those kinds of things. That is to say that, that it's not just about the behavior, right? When you go back to, to, these, to, to the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, right? The, the, the goal is not just outward change. The goal is inward transformation, and so the original audience, there were implications for, for what the Lord was revealing and in, in, in the, in the truth of scriptures. It was confronting them at a heart level, at a thinking level, at a motivation level, at a desire level, not just addressing their outward conduct. So we're talking about mind renewal because we'll never, never experience life transformation without that. It must, the, the thinking must be changed. And so this is what... This is the, what we'll be looking for as we study, again, the book, the book of Hosea. We'll be, we'll be first seeking to understand what the author was saying to his original audience. Then we'll be trying to understand the implications of what was being said to the original audience. So what was the effect? The question is, what was the effect that that was intended to have on the original audience? You figure that out. And then once you've done that, then you begin to make connections between the implications for them and the implications for you. So that's, that, that you'll be asking questions like, how does this passage impact my spiritual attitude? How should it affect my thinking? How does my thinking need to change? Where is God confronting my, what is sometimes my humanistic worldview? What are, what are the new theological convictions that, that need to be cemented in my thinking? What are the sinful motivations in my life that need to be brought under the captivity and lordship of Christ? What are the idols of my heart that need to be smashed? Because we're going to look at the idolatry that was going on in the nation of Israel. But again, eventually, it's so that you can get to this heart, these heart implications in your own life. What are the things that need to change in your own heart? Because as we study the Old Testament, we'll find it's not necessary for us to sacrifice our son or build an ark or leave our country or pick up manna today or observe Old Testament food laws. But it is necessary for us to deal with our self-sufficiency and our pride, our materialism, our ingratitude and discontent, our sinful anger, our jealousy, our prejudices, and our fear of man. Right, We do need to deal with those things. We don't necessarily need to obey the Lord in the same way that some of those people did in the Old Testament. For instance, Noah. Right, But we need to understand what those implications are and what those, you might call them, timeless principles are so that then we can take those timeless truths and principles and then apply them to our own situation. Right, consider the implications for our own lives. So as we study Hosea, we'll be looking for those things. We'll also be looking for these recurring, we might call them motifs, that are emphasized all throughout the Old Testament, God's character and his attributes, the tragedy of sin, God's judgment of sin, uh, the heart of man um, that, again, doesn't change a whole lot through the Scriptures. The blessings for faith and obedience, covenant faithfulness, a need for and provision of a Savior and sacrifice for sin and the coming kingdom and glory. Because it's going to say a lot in Hosea about, about the kingdom. Um, and so, again, we'll have to sort those things out. Uh, what, what, where are we headed? 
right? What are those ultimate destinies of man in creation? So it's absolutely essential for us to read, to study, and to know the Old Testament and to do that carefully, uh, always remembering that it is from God. So again, we read it, normal interpretation, but again, this isn't just some, this isn't the newspaper, right? This isn't just a, a tweet, right? This, this is God's word. So there's, a, there's a, a gravity to it, and yet there's not this whole nother set of principles that we use to interpret Scripture. We interpret the Scripture very much like we interpret anything else we're reading. We determine the genre, the historical occasion. We look at the words, right? If, we, if I said, um, we're going to read our Bibles, if I just switched some words around and said, our Bibles are going to read us, it's a whole different... Now the subject is... Uh, the, it's like, it doesn't mean the same thing. And so we've got to look at those things and put those things together but again, all for the purpose of heart transformation. So we want to be careful, remembering this is God's word, and, and then striving to determine the meaning and apply its timeless truth to our hearts, and not just hearts, but behavior. Right? So if we deal with the inner man, we deal with the implications at a heart level, honestly, folks, the, the, what we do on the outside is, is sort of intuitive. Right? I mean, if I understand that I am supposed to love my wife as Christ loved the church and to serve and sacrifice, you, you won't necessarily have to tell me now, Joel, these are the four things you need to do this week for your wife. If I, if I embrace that implication of the kind of husband, husband that I'm supposed to be, you don't have to tell me how to do that. I'll figure it out. You know, I mean, if I, if I, am, if I am gripped by the call to be a servant leader in my home, I'll figure out a way, right? You don't have to help me a lot with the application. But we, but we definitely want to go to application, right? We don't want to just, we don't want, simply want heart change, right? We want heart change that then works its way out in the choices and the decisions that we make. So that's, that's sort of where we're going with this authorial intent, implications, and then connections between the implications for them and the implications for us. So what we'll do next week, again, we're going to get into who is Hosea and the times that he was uh, ministering and what was going on in, in Israel and why it is maybe that Hosea is the first of the 12, right, of the minor prophets. We're sort of all lumped together as one sort of grouping called the 12. Uh, chronologically, he's not first, but in the arrangement of the 12, he stands at the head, right? So even that, I mean, what, what's, what does that say about the purpose of this book? Um, and then, again, what we're going to attempt to do is to, well, it'll be a slow start. Uh, we may cover a few verses, and then probably be the next week that we really get into chapter 1, and then, Lord willing, we're going to move it about a chapter a week. Um, so that'll be a lot for us to cover, but uh, my, my, what I'd like to do is not, is not get too bogged down um, in that, but um, you know, move through it, through it pretty, pretty rapidly. So I encourage you to be reading it, um, come prepared, and I think it'll be a, a really beneficial study for us. We, we, I think we're going to be amazed that every week it's just like, even though that was back then with those people and this was going on, that we'll be leaving can, with you know, in our own hearts, that's me, right? That, that's what I'm guilty of. And not just, again, leaving under the weight of that, but also seeing the faithfulness of God, the love of God, the steadfast loving kindness of God um, in our lives. So, okay, any comments?